Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Little Match Girl, is scarcely more than 500 words in length. But those few words tell a powerful story that has endured for almost two centuries. On a cold New Year's Eve, a young girl wanders the streets of the city. She is freezing and hungry and exhausted, but she doesn't dare go home for she fears her father will beat her. He has sent her into the streets to sell matches in order to help feed them. Her mother is dead and they live in a small room with cracks large enough to let the icy wind tear through it. The young girl walks the streets in bare feet, having lost her only pair of shoes earlier in the day. They were too big for her, having been left behind by her dead mother. They had slipped from her feet as she tried to escape the carriages that traveled the busy streets. Unable to sell any matches and ignored by those who pass her by in their haste, the young girl huddles in an alley and strikes one of her matches to get warm. The light and the heat carry her from the cold to a warm stove, and she momentarily basks in the warmth only to see it fade as the match fades. Determined to bring the heat back, the young girl strikes yet another match. This time she's carried to a room filled with a holiday feast. The light from the candles on the table illuminate a rich feast of goose and stuffing and all the trimmings. The knife and fork are slicing into the goose, ready for her to enjoy the succulent meal. Just as she reaches for the utensils, though, the match fades and the feast disappears. Unable to face the cold again, the young girl strikes another match. The light and the warmth carry her into the presence of her late beloved grandmother, the only person she felt ever truly loved her other than her mother. The elderly woman reaches down to take the young girl in her loving arms, and just as the young girl reaches up to her, the match fades, and with it the loving arms of her grandmother. Stricken with the pain of isolation and desperation, the young girl strikes the whole bundle of matches against the wall, creating a powerful, vibrant light and enough heat to banish her cold and loneliness. In the rays of warmth, the young girl feels her grandmother reaching out to her again, and she reaches back, rising from the misery of her pitiful existence into the loving arms of mercy that will carry her finally to peace. The next morning, the little girl's body is found by those who couldn't bother with stopping the previous day. There's nothing to identify her, but the charred remains of the matches left by her side. Anderson ends the story with a little twist. He writes, No one imagined what beautiful things she had seen and how happily she had gone with her old grandmother 
into that bright new year. It isn't that Anderson is finding joy in the death of a child who froze. Anderson is trying to tell us that sometimes those of us who live very comfortable lives have trouble seeing the truth. I think through her poverty and her rejection, the little match girl is able to see the fullness of God's reign, the world made right. She is able to see herself welcomed with loving arms to a table of plenty. Those around her who stumble over her to get on with their lives are unable to see the deeper truth of God's new reality. Is it possible that we miss out on that deeper truth in our busyness, in our obsession with getting ahead? How can we know the healing power of the vision that Jesus offers when we live so often comfortable and isolated lives? To a people living in exile, those who had lost everything when they were taken captive by the Babylonians, the prophet Jeremiah proclaims a message of hope. Though they often feel forgotten by God and struggle to hold on to their identity as a people, Jeremiah reminds them that God has not forgotten them. God has heard their cries and God is already acting. God is gathering them from the furthest corners of the earth and bringing them home. Jeremiah promises that the exile is over. Those words hold great power, not only for their vision of a homecoming, but also for their vision of a new community, the new community God is creating from the ruins of Israel. The religious and political elite had stood behind the holiness code for generations, determining the boundaries of the community based on conformity to that code. Those who were healthy, who owned land, who enjoyed the benefits of their health and wealth were considered insiders while those who were poor or ill or of questionable lineage were left out of the community. They were seen as outsiders or unclean. The prophet's words had fallen on closed ears with warnings continually because the prophet had called for an end to the injustices that marked Israel's life before the exile. But now, as a people whose wealth and health and identity have been destroyed by their own actions, they are finally ready to hear God's truth. They are finally ready to see the good news of the beloved community of God's reign being built in their midst. Jeremiah offers a vision of community, a different one than the one they knew before the exile. God is gathering up all of God's children, the sick and the well, the poor and the rich, the natives and the foreigners, into one people. God plans to create a new community marked by inclusion, equality, and justice. Those who were poor and outcast are leading the way into this beloved community of God's reign. They are the ones who were able to see the beauty of the world that God is creating. 
Someone once said that real faith is often born in desperation, and there may be some truth in those words. The author of Hebrews certainly seems to affirm that suffering is essential to the identity of true leaders. Previous religious leaders had fallen prey to the weaknesses of the human heart, giving in to the temptation to revel in their power and their position and their privilege. But Jesus, the great high priest, the one whose reign will endure for all time, overcomes those weaknesses in conquering death itself. The deepest truth of God is found not in the halls of power, but in the suffering of the world. Bartimaeus knew that truth. His life was marked by suffering. Not only had he lost his sight, but he'd been rejected by the community. In the ancient Near East, it was common to look at those who were disabled or differently abled as those who were possessed or being punished for evil deeds, either what they had done or what their parents or grandparents or someone else in their family might have done. Bartimaeus appeared to be suffering not only from the rejection for being blind, but for the deeds of his father as well. And we know that because of his name. The names of men in first century Jewish society were often formed by taking the name of their father and adding to it the prefix bar, which means son. Bartimaeus then was the son of Timaeus. And the word Timaeus in Aramaic means fear. He was then the son of fear. Whatever it was that his father did or didn't do, it was enough to have his name changed to fear and to ensure that his son was known as the son of fear. But what's interesting is that Bartimaeus overcomes that name in what he does. Jesus and his disciples find this son of fear sitting outside the city of Jerusalem, of Jericho, a clear indication that he's been cast aside and forgotten by polite society. He's begging from whatever passerbys might be able to spare, a coin, a scrap of bread, a piece of cloth. Mark leads us to believe that Jesus and the disciples are leaving the city and engaged in some sort of important conversation when Bartimaeus, the son of fear, learns that it's Jesus who's walking in front of him, and he shouts at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me! Those around Bartimaeus try to silence him to get this homeless beggar to be quiet, but he just shouts all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus stops dead in his tracks. Not just because Bartimaeus has shouted at him, for surely so many people must have shouted at him trying to get his attention. It's the words that Bartimaeus has dared to shout that have tripped Jesus as he left the city. To call someone son of David was tantamount to treason. It was a proclamation that this person was the rightful ruler of the people. Only the emperor deserved that kind of respect. And yet here we find a blind beggar from a family of cowards, an unnoticeable figure on the side of the road, acclaiming Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. 
Bartimaeus is saying something not just about Jesus, but also about the nature of good leadership. Leaders esteemed by the world are often the ones who become consumed by their own power and position and privilege, but leaders esteemed by God are those who live with mercy and justice and humility. Roman emperors lorded their power over their people, demanding to be worshipped and adored as gods. Jesus walks with the people, welcomes those who are outcast to the table, heals those whom no one else will touch, and calls the religious and political leaders to give justice to all of the people, to show mercy to the most vulnerable, and to realize that they too are frail human beings. In shouting these words, Bartimaeus is rejecting the Roman emperor and choosing Jesus as the better ruler. It's enough to get him killed, but it's also enough to grab Jesus' attention. Jesus calls for Bartimaeus to approach. And there's a moment where we're left to wonder if Jesus doesn't stare in amazement at this blind beggar who wouldn't be silenced. Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want from me? My rabbi, my teacher, I want to see. And Jesus looks at him and says, go, your faith has made you well. Not I have made you well, but your faith, your courage, your determination, your ability to see what others couldn't see has made you well. Mark tells us that Bartimaeus immediately regained his sight and followed Jesus as he traveled. Who would have thought that a blind beggar, the son of a coward, would have had better vision than any sighted person and more courage than any of the disciples? We are a people who seek God, who yearn to see the world transformed by the love embodied in Jesus. And yet we have been trained to search for God in places where God isn't always so easily found. We looked for God in houses of worship, in popular spiritual teachers, in books and in movies. But the easiest place to find the God who was born in a barn, who befriended those who were prostitutes and thieves, and who was crucified as a common criminal, the easiest way to find that God has always been to look among those who have nothing in the eyes of the world. May we continually trip over those who are forgotten in our world until we have fallen on our faces enough times to truly learn that the God we seek is found among those who are poor, vulnerable, and in need. We're only in joining them in sharing their lives and their struggles and we truly see the beloved community of God's reign. Amen.